This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Innovate Podcast. I'm David Castro, an Ashoka Fellow and CEO of the Institute for Leadership Education, Advancement, and Development, also known as iLead. Innovate features dialogue with... Today, our guest is John Marks, founder and president of Search for Common Ground, the largest international nonprofit of its kind, working to transform the way the world deals with conflict away from adversarial approaches and toward collaborative problem solving. Founded over 30 years ago, the work of this organization has extended to 26 countries in Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. The scale of Search for Common Ground is very impressive, with more than 400 employees and 35 offices worldwide. John Marks is a Skoll Fellow in Social Entrepreneurship. He holds an honorary doctorate from the University of Peace in Costa Rica. He has served in the U.S. Foreign Service and is also an executive assistant to the late U.S. Senator Clifford Case. He's a graduate of Cornell University and also was a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics and a visiting scholar to Harvard Law School. John's also an award-winning author and a senior Ashoka Fellow. That connection to Ashoka is something that we both share. John, it's a great honor to be able to speak with you today about your important work and your leadership in this field of peace building and conflict resolution. I'd like to begin with a question about the philosophical roots of Search for Common Ground. I think it's fascinating that your organization's work embodies some of the principles that are also advocated through the work of the late Roger Fisher, founder of the Harvard Negotiating Project and also the author of Getting to Yes. I wonder if you could begin by talking about your relationship with that body of work, how perhaps it inspired you, and also how your work uh, inspired Roger and his work uh, at the Negotiation Project, and how perhaps you both furthered um, thinking in this important field. Well, actually, in the two years before I started Search, uh, I worked for Roger Fisher at the, the Project Negotiation at Harvard, and so there was a great particular on a tactical level, understanding on my part and trying to adapt some of the things he was saying. He was a great teacher to me. Uh, I learned an awful lot from him, and he was very important. Um, I think that what we've been able to do is take some of the ideas he worked out on uh, about getting people to underlying interests and making yesable propositions and the like, and we found ways to apply them across whole societies. For the most part, Roger worked uh, on an individual negotiation level or in a, in a uh, facilitation or training workshop or problem-solving workshop basis. And what we've tried to do is expand that kind of work into a societal level where um, you, take, you, you can work across whole countries simultaneously. Obviously, you can't go as deep, but you can go much wider. And it's why we as an organization produce a great deal of television and radio programming and other, um, and carry on a lot of other activities that get us working across whole countries. Yeah, I think one of the ways in which your work really deeply extends that is in the area of the use of media and narrative and drama to really create the context 
for collaboration. And I, and I want to talk with you about that in more depth. I'd I'd like if you could start a little bit and tell us a little bit about the early years because my understanding is that search really began with a focus on nuclear arms and the relationship between the United States and what was then the Soviet Union. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that start and then how the organization evolved and branched out from that. Okay. Well, let me start with myself because I'm the founder. And I had been working for seven or eight years, or actually many more years than that, on a strictly adversarial basis. Um, I was a, a, a diehard um, opponent of the war in Vietnam. I saw many abuses in the way the United States government was carrying on its foreign policy. And on an adversarial basis, I was trying to change things with some success. I um, worked for a U.S. senator at a time that we shepherded through the Senate the legislation that ended the war, that cut off funding for the war. So I, it wasn't that I was without effect. But um, I got to the point in my own life where I saw that what I was doing was being defined and determined by what I was against. And I wanted to build a new system rather than tear down the old system. And I thought that there needed to be better ways of dealing with conflict than to try to uh, let's say, become stronger than the other party and beat them down and therefore end the conflict, which was the way that many people were doing it, or many governments particularly were trying to do it. Mm. And uh, 31 years ago, uh, in 1982, I founded Search, Search for Common Ground, in order to work on what initially on the U.S.-Soviet relationship and to, find, to try to find common ground between the two countries which at the time, let me say, was not exactly a popular idea. That was the time of the evil empire and right. Reagan was the president. And we were very much a fringe group. But we stayed at it, and we worked for our first, I guess, eight or nine years almost exclusively on U.S.-Soviet relations, trying to bring the Cold War to an end. And through efforts of many, many people, the Cold War finally did come to an end. The Soviet Union dissolved. And we found ourselves as an organization suddenly had moved from being on the fringes to being on the mainstream without changing one bit. In other words, what happened was that the world started to recognize um, on a policy level that there were other causes of conflict uh, or global conflict besides the clash between East and West or U.S. and Soviet Union. And suddenly we were experts in how to deal with those new kinds of conflict. And I could say it was in the kingdom of the blind, the man with one eye was king. <laughs> we didn't know that much, but we certainly knew more than some of the people who were working in. Did this transition kind of dovetail with your realizing that you could bring these principles that Roger was working on to a greater audience? Am I hearing that right? No, I'd been actually doing it for 10 years in the U.S.-Soviet context. It just hadn't been as successful. I see, uh, I see. <laughs> yeah. so, so, then, so what happens is then at some point in that early work, you decide or you, you recognize that there's this bigger opportunity because people are interested in new ways, ways of approaching conflict. And then that then took the work of your organization into some places that maybe you hadn't anticipated originally. Is that, is that true? Or how did that evolve? Yeah, well, actually what happened is when the Soviet Union started to collapse, we had been fairly successful in working with the Soviets, but there wasn't any pro problem left. And I actually saw very early on during that collapse 
that if we didn't expand into other parts of the world, we were going to go under as an organization, that the kind of work we were doing was needed elsewhere, but we needed to get beyond the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was no more, if you remember. Right. And so we moved first into the Middle East and then Africa and Eastern Europe, and um, we found it was much easier for us to operate in those places than in what remained of the Soviet Union, and we eventually closed our project down in Russia. And um, now we're, you know, actually when you said it, we're, we're, we have offices in 30 countries at this point and a staff of 600. Wow, that's, it's grown even further than that. So that's Well, we have a non-updated website, I think, the problem is. Uh, that problem is universal among organizations, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, I know you've done a lot of really great work in the Middle East and, and also in Africa, and I wonder if you could just tell us about those two locations and a little bit of what the history has been and what's going on right now. Well, it, it's hard. We're, we're, uh, uh, right now, our biggest project is in the Congo, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC. Right. And there we have uh, eight offices and 100 people working to reduce the level of conflict and uh, to prevent sexual violence against women. And we use a wide variety of tools. I mean, it's rather extraordinary the way we've grown in methodology from those early years. But um, we um, are doing, uh, we have a negotiating team that's been able to go into individual conflicts and apply kind of Roger Fisher type methodology to very obscure conflicts, one in a place called Dongo where um, 100,000 people had become refugees, and our team, within about three months, was able to get the two warring tribes to sign an agreement and let the refugees come home. And it was pure Roger Fisher stuff, but Roger never left Harvard for, you know, long enough to spend three months in Dongo, nor do I blame him for not wanting to do that. I don't do it myself. Right. Um, but we, had a, you know, we have people who are doing that. We do. We have a, a couple of television series going on in the in the Congo, which um, essentially put messages into the society um, um, that would have a mediating effect on the society. Uh, we have a soap opera drama series uh, about girls playing uh, of soccer, which is aimed to prevent sexual violence against women and girls. And we also have a reality series there. And then we do a lot of radio soap opera. Uh, we do participatory theater. We do showings of um, 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 uh, films that are, uh, if you will, have an anti-rape message and then uh, are followed by facilitated dialogue. And more than a million and a half people have come and seen those films, which are usually shown outside to crowds that can go as large as 6,000 people. So it's Roger Fisher writ large, if you will. I think this is a really fascinating part of your work, the the extension of these ideas into narrative and soap opera and then media through radio and television. In preparing for this interview, I had a chance to watch some of the videos that you have up on the net, uh, particularly about your work in Burundi and near Rwanda, and uh, a fascinating sequence in which I believe you talked about how before you guys got to Burundi, and I'm sure this is the case in other places where you've worked, before you got there, there were a lot of messages that were being 
uh, promulgated that really was stoking the violence and the aggressive confrontational approach to conflict, and that you your team is then able able to propagate a different message that's focused on finding common ground. It's such an interesting and creative approach. I wonder if you could tell me how did that evolve? How, how did you how, how did you guys come up with that? Well. We, it actually came out of what happened in Rwanda with the genocide in 1994, right. where, if you remember, there was hate radio, um, Radio de Milcolina was called, and it was encouraging genocide. It was encouraging uh, one, one ethnic group to look on the other one as cockroaches that had to be stamped out. Hmm. And it had an incredibly devastating impact on, um, create, in creating momentum which supported the genocide. And the same thing started to be happening in Burundi um, about six months later. And we saw that we wanted to counter hate radio in Burundi. Rwanda had already happened and there was nothing to be done there. But in Burundi, it was still, you know, it was teetering on the edge, but it hadn't gone over the edge yet. And um, we, we discovered that the opposite of hate radio is not love radio. We call it common ground radio, where you bring people together from opposing sides or opposing groups and you have them work together to create broadcasting. And we set up in Burundi something called Studio Ijambo, which meant place where people come together to talk. And the studio produced radio programming with Hutu and Tutsi staff. And they were in it together, and they became colleagues and brothers and sisters in creating this kind of programming. We uh, managed it and found the funding for it, and at its peak, it was producing uh, 15 hours a week of original radio programming. Um, it still goes on today, but not at that quite at that level. And the idea was you could use virtually any format. We had talk shows that were mediated. Um, we, did, we did our first soap opera there. Um, we had a music show, which had music bringing people together. Um, we, we told stories of Hutus who saved the lives of Tutsis and Tutsis who'd say the lives of Hutus. And the idea was to change the story in Burundi, um, to change the idea that the way to be one supportive of one's group was to kill the other group or, or injure the other group. Uh, there was an attitude of my group, right or wrong. And what we were able to do was to make a major contribution to changing the story. And changing a story, um, changing the metaphor, changing the, um, um, the basic ideas of a society is why we use media, media so extensively. And for those of you who might be out in the listening audience who might be skeptical of the approach, you just might think of what the Cosby show or All in the Family, the impact that those kind of old TV uh, serials had on um, American culture in the sense that both of them played a very important part, it seems to me, in uh, curbing bigotry and opposing bigotry in the United States. And it, drama is a very good way of reaching people, particularly episodic drama that's, that's repeated quite a lot. The repetition is very important. Two strands in this I wonder if you could comment on. One is this strand of 
bringing together people who are in conflict for a shared activity. This is something that I had heard Roger talk about, and um, and I think it's something that's obviously evidenced in this work where part of what's happening is you bring people together who are normally in conflict, and they're doing something together. And then that, of course, communicates a message about the possibility for collaboration. And then the other thing is what you just said about changing the story so that um, the story is not one that ends in violence, but that ends, that models a different kind of result. And both of those things are so powerful. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. And particularly, I'd like to come at this a little bit from the lens of empathy, which is something that Ashoka is focusing on now, and maybe ask you, how do you see that that kind of work increases empathy among people so that they can take the other's perspective, perhaps, and see the world through the eyes of another? Uh, Well, there are about eight questions you've asked. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, um, But um, I think empathy is a a key part of it. Um, We might call it putting oneself in the shoes of the other or walking 20 miles in his or her shoes or whatever. But it, that's a good part of the battle. It's, not, it's, ne- it's necessary, it probably isn't sufficient, to turn things around. Um, the idea of having people work together towards shared goals is the essence of uh, what they call in the, in the literature having superordinate goals that people can come up together around. I mean, in the Middle East, we do it. We have a program which brings together Israelis, Palestinians, and Jordanians at a very high level to um, work together to, um, um, to do something about infectious diseases. Everybody can agree that having the plague is not a good idea and, the only, and that the germs don't stop at checkpoints. So even people who are in a, a conflict, in a struggle, can come together around such an idea. It's something we did an awful lot of in the, in the U.S. Soviet days, um, of getting Americans and Soviets working together to find shared problems. But if you go back into the literature of conflict resolution, you find Strauss and Doyle who talk about um, having the essence of a meeting is having people, instead of face each other as the problem, sit together and take on shared problems. This is, these are not new ideas. The uh, devil is in the details of setting up the programs. I mean, you know, there are about four or five very basic ideas that underlie our work. Uh, but how you implement them on a large scale so they make a difference is the key. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and John Marks, founder and president of Search for Common Ground. You know, one of the things that um, you talk about as a fundamental principle of the work, I think, involves this idea of a shift in mindset about 
conflict itself. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how you see that mind shift occurring. I think it's sort of this breakthrough moment where someone says, okay, you know, I'm not going to respond. I'm going to choose not to respond to this difference in an adversarial or aggressive way, but I'm going to see it now as an asset uh, that I can use to learn or uh, I'm going to see that difference as part of my community that I can respond in a collaborative way. And it seems to me that so much of the work involves that that fundamental shift in people's thinking. Can you talk a little bit about your experience of, of how that happens um, in, in these places and, and what is the turning point for people that are in, in a state of conflict? Well, if I knew exactly what the turning point was, I would implement. <laughs> um, there are kind of lo lots of different ways to that point, and it seems to vary quite a bit with individuals and cultures. Um, in the U.S.-Chinese relationship, many people felt the turning point was um, having a ping-pong team and Henry Kissinger go to China, and that did turn things around. But on the other hand, there were lots of other reasons, and it's not so simple as you just send a ping-pong team into a new country, and they would turn around. In other words, the environment, the times, the context, the culture are all factors, and there's so many variables in this that it's just very hard to um, say that there is, a, it's impossible to say there's a single way. Um, on the other hand, by, as I said, by giving people a new set of story, metaphor, models, we feel that you can uh, go a long way in changing what's going on. To have people realize that there's a real advantage in it for them. Virtually everyone's going to act in a way that um, is, uh, puts forward their, their self-interest. That seems to be human nature. Mm. So there need to be created environments or systems which show why it's in the best in the best interest of people to solve conflict peacefully and in ways that maximize the benefits of people on all sides. Um, it's not so easy, however, if you're in the middle of things. Um, I a, a cliche that I've invented, which I I tend to throw out, is you can't mediate in your own divorce. Right. Uh, um, in other words, if you're totally invested in this and you've got an emotional attachment, you know my father was killed or whatever, it becomes very difficult to see this reasoning where in the abstract, if you're in a classroom at a university 5,000 miles away, it's very easy to say, oh, they should find common ground. Um, but with people on the ground who are engaged, you have to work with that emotion and the like. It, and it's not usually an, only an intellectual uh, battle of getting new ideas in you. There need to be emotional questions answered and the like. It's a very complicated job. One of the other principles that I'm hearing you talk, uh, it's a trend, a theme that's coming through in what you just said, and I found this striking in reading about your organization. You talk about that peace is a process and not an event. And I think that's a powerful idea because a lot of people who want to do conflict resolution, they're always looking for that breakthrough moment where, oh my God, it's done. We have this sort of transcendence and now everything's great. But what you're really saying there, I think, is bringing it down to a reality of finding a different way to manage conflict on a day-to-day -day basis. And that it's not that conflict's going to disappear. It's what's going to happen is we're going to have a different response to it. I wonder if you could talk about uh, that concept about the process of peace 
and how maybe what search does is different in getting people to think about their interactions as a process that's ongoing and not a one-shot deal. Well, uh, the way you describe it is quite accurate, at least in my view. Um, it's something that goes on and on, and it's a process, but it's not, it's not only a straight line process. It tends to be shaped like a roller coaster. It has ups and it has downs. And anyone who thinks it's gonna it's gonna happen and it, or it's gonna be over usually is wrong. Now, this is not so of of, of what we would call in the in the conflict resolution field a back fence. Um, 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 uh, negotiation. In other words, if you're arguing with a neighbor about how your back fence should be, you probably can find a solution that will hold. But for the most part, for a complicated question of war and peace or ethnic questions, it goes on interminably, it, hundreds of years, tens of years, and the process needs to be managed. So even when agreements are found, it doesn't mean that the, the agreements are self-executing or it's all over. It just keeps going on and on and on. And for some, and I always forget that when I'm in the middle of one. Right. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> you always want it to be over. You always want it to be solved. You go with the ups, and then the downs bring you down. Um, but it always happens, and it's 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 a rule. But I, I mean, I can't prove it statistically. But it seems to me it's a rule that peace is a process. Well, and the other element that's interesting, and I'm sure you have a, a unique perspective on this because so much of your work is international, is that it seems to me in the West we have a very short view of history. I mean, we're willing to sort of forget the things that happened last week and rewrite history on a day-to-day -day basis. And many other cultures have this deep sense of time that goes back over you know generations and and that it's hard to let go of something when it's so part of your, when your identity goes back generation, generation, generation like that. And it seems to me, I'm just curious about this. It seems to me that maybe that's where the power of narrative is so compelling because in those cultures, uh, there also is uh, a lot of interest and in narrative and stories in terms of defining identity. I wonder if you could comment on that, and am I, am, is that true, or is there something else going on? Well, I would say, in general, peace building is culture-bound. It's not 100% that way, but it's large, to a large extent. So whatever the culture is, and you're absolutely accurate when you say how many cultures, what happened a thousand years ago, is just as alive as something that happened yesterday, and that's not true in the United States. For us, you know, to, a few five years ago is ancient history. The kids don't even remember it anymore. They they may study it in school, um, and I mean that that happens to be true. But even in the most hidebound, um, tradition encrusted cultures, things can change. And take the example of France and Germany. I mean, there were not two more hostile countries in the world um, in, during the last century. Uh, they had fought three wars in the course of uh, 70 years. And I mean, there were feelings were strong. And in the course of about somewhere between 10 and 40 years, the European Union becomes the, um, um, the framework within which they just totally transform the relationship. And it was, you know, it was people in the, the field uh, they weren't they didn't think consider themselves conflict resolution people, but they did consider themselves people who wanted to build structures that would change the nature of the relationship. And there were some very seminal things done after World War 
II, which brought France and Germany back together. Um, the Ford Foundation um, uh, actually um, uh, provided funding for a small secretariat um, headed by Jean Monnet to create what became um, uh, the European Union. And there was an organization in, um, in Switzerland, um, um, oh, uh, they're now called the Initiatives of Change, uh, which brought together top German and French leaders for meetings uh, in 1946, 1947, and they all came, Adenauer and the top leaders of, of France and Germany, and they had a profound impact. In other words, the kind of programs that, I, that I'm running um, were right. done back then and changed the nature of, of the way things. And now no one remembers that France and Germany, almost no one remembers that France and Germany used to fight these horrible wars with each other. That's fascinating. I mean, really, it's it's very interesting how these shared experiences can be so profound in terms of changing the, the cultural narrative about identity and the sense and building a sense of community where there wasn't one before. I, I wonder, you know, it, it, for an audience listening to this, a lot of your work is international, and yet anybody who reads the news today and who follows popular culture. We seem to have a lot of work to do here in the United States, probably as much as anywhere, and particularly in the sort of trench warfare that goes on in our democracy uh, politically. And I wonder if you could talk about your perspective on how these ideas can get applied at home. And in particular, I know you're working on a very interesting project that has uh, some uh, role in America in terms of improving relations between Muslims and the West. So I wonder if you could pick up both of those strands. First of all, for, first part of the question is, what is what should we be doing more of in America in our culture? And then secondly, if you could talk about that work that Search is doing in regard to the relationship between Americans and Muslims. Um, the United States, as most people would recognize, is a hugely polarized society. And it's as polarized probably as any place in the world. The difference is with us and with many places in Africa is we don't tend to kill our opponents. We just tend to marginalize them, think the less of them, think they're stupid, and everything else. That tends to be the way that our political discourse is, um, is carried on. And it's very hard to transcend that, big time hard. And I live in Washington, D.C., and you see the polarization here which most people seem to think is worse than it's ever been. Uh, now, whether or not, that I'm sure at the time of the American Civil War it was worse, but who knows. But um, we would like, to, as an organization, to be doing much more in the United States. There is a major problem, however, is that nobody is uh, with of substantial means has so far been willing to fund what I would call a common ground approach inside the United States. So we find it very, very difficult to raise money on a continuing basis in this country. I think it's what most people want, but the funding community, the foundations, tend to be almost as polarized as the political, um, as the politicians on this. They they want their side to win out in every argument, um, and so. For us, we had always had a vision that we would be 50-50 between the United States and internationally in the way we operated, and we've never been able to raise uh, sufficient funds in the United States to be, I think, probably 1% or 2% of our activities, our actual activities, are inside the United States. Mm. But, 
So most of our funding comes from uh, foreign aid agencies of the, of the Europeans and Americans and um, around the world, and there are no foreign aid agencies funding inside the United States, as far as I can tell. Huh. But you are doing some very interesting work around the relationship between Americans and Muslims. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we publish something called the Common Ground News Service, which every week puts out four or five articles which are repeated. We've had over, I think, 40,000 of them reprinted in newspapers around the world. And we are bringing people together. We'd like to be doing much more to combat Islamophobia. Um, but again, we haven't been able to raise the funds to get it done. And, um, um, you know, and I think what we're doing is very good, and I think what we're, on, we're on the right track, but we're not able to take it up to scale um, as we are in places like the Congo or Burundi. And that's one of the things I regret most about what's happening or happens in our work. As you look at the future of peace building and conflict resolution around the world, what are the things that inspire you and what are you most worried about? Well, I think that the field of peace building needs to become something that's accepted as a, a legitimate field. And right now it's not. Right now, there are groups like ours that do this work and we're good, but we're, it's not like the governments are looking to us to uh, do this, the, the, the work that they, should be do, that they could be doing or to support us in, in a, a very big way. And I think governments need to, and international organizations, need to institutionalize and bring into their system the kind of work that we're doing, which for the most part has not yet been done. And because the, the, you can't do the, you know, this is not something, most of the peace building field at least in the United States, is made up of uh, either small organizations or sole practitioners. And that doesn't work for transforming or building peace in large systems. Hmm. And for large systems, you need larger uh, um, engagement, larger operations. So there needs to be, it seems to me, an institutionalization and a systematization without being overly bureaucratic of the kinds of ideas that I'm talking about. In other words, there need to be 20 organizations like Search for Common Ground, and now they're not. And I think that's one of the problems. I think the ideas are very important, and the problem is in the, you know, the basic ideas are known. Um, you know, Roger Fisher gave us, in, and Bill Urey, in getting to, yes, the basic ideas that are needed. But they have, the ways to haven't been found yet to apply them around the world in a way that really makes a difference. And I think that it's uh, it's fascinating. Um, I think it was Yuri who wrote a book called Getting Past No, which is really a meditation on how to try to do collaborative negotiating with partners who are insistent on different models that are more aggressive and confrontational. And it is tough to be able to practice collaboration when you're working with people who aren't looking at it through that lens. So I guess what you're, what you're saying is that even though there's been a tremendous, search has had a tremendous success in showcasing this kind of work, you still feel like there's tremendous work that needs to be done in terms of taking these kinds of approaches more mainstream in the way that governments respond to societal conflicts. No, that's exactly what I would say. Right. And there need to be ways found to apply the ideas of Roger Fisher or Bill Urey 
on across whole countries and into disputes that are raging, and that hasn't happened. In other words, the fundamental ideas are known, but the application the, um, is, hasn't been there. And you're, and you're doing some really groundbreaking work, I think, in the use of media and narrative, which goes, I think, beyond uh, anything that Fisher and Yuri really wrote about. So we'll hopefully at some day see your addition uh, to the theoretical part of this uh, in terms of describing your work. Right. We stand on the shoulders of Fisher and Yuri. Right. And you know, we've learned. I've learned a lot from them. I'm still very in close contact. And Bill Urey is doing very different, you know, more applied work right now with his Abraham Path Initiative in the Middle East. Yes. And um, so, I mean, he's moved on. Roger, unfortunately, has died by now. Right. right. But um, um, there are always applications going. But there's some bureaucratic, organizational, and financial questions that nobody's answered. In other words, how to organize right. in a way that makes a difference. And the and having thousands of soul practitioners around the world is not the answer as far as I'm concerned. It's not enough. No, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Got it. So we're coming to the end of our time, and I'd like to close by asking you to comment from the perspective of a practicing social entrepreneur, which is sort of where we are looking at the horizon and the things that you're struggling with right now. I came across this quote in a video interview that you gave, and it really spoke to my own experience. You quoted Napoleon, who said, this is in English, he said, one becomes engaged and then one sees what the possibilities are. You can, you can uh, give us the French line. Uh, my French isn't good enough for that. But I thought it was a terrific idea. And you also said, you can't know the steps that you're going to be able to take, nor do you have enough knowledge when you start out. You need to be open to the fact that at the beginning you don't know, and usually in the middle you don't know either. You're going to create from what came before, not from your preconceived ideas. Uh, this was a very truthful and inspirational thought for me. I wonder if for the social entrepreneurs out there you could expand on that point about being in the moment and being open to discovery. Yeah. Um, see, I, I don't think you could know when you start where you're headed. I think you, you, there may be 87 steps that you're going to take, but uh, you probably can't see more than two or three or four or five out in front of you. And what, what you do, and I think very, every social entrepreneur does this, whether or not he or she articulates it, is you, you see where you are and then you see what's coming next. And usually the opportunities become much more evident and greater as you proceed. And things that you didn't, couldn't have conceived in the beginning or in the middle, you start to see. And I think that's the essence of how we all work. And people who have to know the answer or want to know the steps or where exactly where they're headed seem to me don't make very good social entrepreneurs or business entrepreneurs, for that matter. It's the entrepreneurial stuff that's the constant. It's not the social or the business to me. Um, and it's, just, it's, it's a process of moving forward one step at a time. I call it you want to be incrementally transformational. And that's an important part of it because you are going to go one step at a time whether or not you want to. I mean, most of us love the idea of the big hit, the big bang or whatever, but we don't achieve it. Uh, and it, it takes a long slog to get move things forward. And then um, it's based where you've been 
to a large extent. And I'm not saying is that you don't, I'm saying exactly that you need to do your homework, you need to do your research, you need to know exactly all the literature and that kind of stuff. But at the end, you're not going to get the answers from that. You're going to get the answers from wherever you are. Right, right. Making the road by walking, so to speak. Exactly. Well, John, thank you so much for the amazing work that you continue to lead around the world. And listeners can uh, contribute and learn more about your work at www.sfcg.org. Did I get that right? Yeah, uh, SFCG for Search for Common Ground. Terrific. We really look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.